Well, good afternoon, everybody, and thanks for joining us for the Gray Center's fifth in a series of webinar discussions of policy uh, possibilities for the new Biden administration and the new Congress. My name is Adam White. I'm the director of the Seaboy and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. It's been my pleasure to moderate each of these discussions, and I'm sure today will be no different. Twelve years ago, when President Obama came to office, uh, in the aftermath of the last financial crisis, financial regulatory policy was a central priority of the new Obama administration. It culminated, of course, with the enactment and original implementation of the Dodd-Frank Act. Now the new Biden administration is formulating regulatory policies of its own on financial policy. Uh, which will deal not only with longstanding policy issues, but of course the new challenges of the day, ranging from fintech to broader conceptions of systemic financial risk and more. To help us understand the road ahead, we're lucky to be joined today by three experts, Peter Conti Brown, Catherine Judge, Jennifer Schulp. Uh, Each of them will offer some initial thoughts on what the administration might do in the months and years ahead, and then we'll have a conversation. And in that conversation, we welcome your questions. So if you have a question, submit it using Zoom's Q&A function, and I'll get to as many questions as I can in the course of the discussion. All right, enough from me. On to the experts. Our first speaker is Peter Conti-Brown. Peter is an assistant professor at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania, and he's a non-resident fellow at the Brookings Institution's Hutchins Center for Fiscal and Monetary Policy and its Center on Regulation and Markets. Financial historian and legal scholar, Peter's written widely on financial institutions, including his 2016 book, The Power and Independence of the Federal Reserve. And he's the author of one of the Gray Center's most recent working papers titled The Problem of Federal Reserve Governance, Law, Politics, and History. It's available on the working papers page of our website. We discussed that um, paper in the most recent episode of the Gray Center's podcast, and it's a pleasure to welcome Peter back. Peter, please, the floor is yours. Thanks so much, Adam, and what a privilege to be with you with the two great experts also on the panel. I want to tell you a little story about the central banker who almost wasn't. In 1979, as the country was trying to deal with what had been longer than a decade of uncertainty about inflation, and really inflation going back at least to the post-war period, President Jimmy Carter was incredibly unsatisfied with his economic policy advisors, top to bottom. He made a famous speech, a speech where he never said the word malaise, but it became known as the malaise speech. And in that speech, he talked primarily about inflation. He talked about how he might, using the power of the presidency, uh, uphold American morals with respect to how to fight inflation. Centered very much in his conception that the president and politicians and the public could control these monetary phenomena as the first actors. Well, he wanted to fire his Treasury Secretary, and he thought the best one who could fill it would be G. William Miller, but Miller was the Fed chair at the time. And so that started this chain reaction. They pulled Miller to the Treasury, and they needed to find a replacement. And the one he wanted was David Kennedy. Sorry, uh, uh, David Rockefeller. David Rockefeller, not uh, not the earlier Treasury Secretary. Rockefeller had a pretty good job as the CEO of the Chase Manhattan Bank, and he didn't want it, so he said no. So instead, Paul Volcker became the Fed chair, and the rest, as they say, is history. He launched a radical monetary regime change that lasted from about 1979 to 1984, but started a movement toward central bank independence that spread the world over 
a in a specific kind of institutional framework. Now, why am I telling this story? Because these little moments of personnel appointments are the stuff of historical contingency. What might have been, where we might go, when this person but not that person is given the reins of power uh, to uh, take their team of financial regulatory horses off into this direction or that. Indeed, the appointment power is not only probably the most important way that presidents shape the administrative state, it's also one of the most important ways that Congress, through the advice and consent of the Senate, and then additional oversight over those appointees, also shape the administrative state. Right now, the Biden administration is staffing up. We're seeing confirmations and announcements of nominations and appointees to councils and, and commissions uh, uh, just about every week. And right now, that is, I think, one of the key issues for us to watch, because that governance, that appointment power, that, uh, as the axiom goes, personnel is policy, will guide so much of what the Biden legacy will be. Now, we, unfortunately, as historians, we don't get a time machine to ask the counterfactual, what would David Rockefeller's Fed have been? And some historians say that even uh, asking the question is inappropriate because of that lack of power. I'm not one of those historians. I think these counterfactuals, these critical junctures that uh, push one trajectory versus another, invite us to ponder in the moment what it is that we might expect from a Fed staff with this person or that, whether Powell gets a reappointment or someone with deeper democratic bona fides does in his place, whether this person or that becomes the comptroller of the currency uh, or what the slate of announcements we've already seen for the CFPB at the FTC at the SEC and others will mean. Right now, what we're seeing is uh, a, an awful lot of extraordinary talent going into the Biden administration, from Janet Yellen, who is the most experienced central banker in world history, uh, now at the helm of the Treasury. Announced today the nomination of Undersecretary for Domestic Finance, Nellie Lane, one of the first, one of the only likely Nominees from both the Trump administration and the Biden administration, although I assume Jay Powell is hoping to be the second. Um, uh, and uh, on and on from uh, a new CFP director, uh, Ravi Chakra, with deep experience and knowledge of his institution, the announcement of nomination of Kate's colleague, Lena Khan, as an FTC commissioner, Gary Gensler, taking a second or sorry, third tour of duty in government now as the no- uh, nominated SEC chair. This is a very deep bench. And so far, we're seeing it with the exceptions of, of maybe Yellen and Lang, come, uh, that the president is drawing more from the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. And the Democratic Party, as with any political party, uh, small or large, is a coalition. And sometimes it's a raucous coalition. There's a coalition stitched together with maybe some bubble gum and a prayer at times with people who in other countries uh, might otherwise be political enemies. What does this mean then for the future? What does this mean for things like climate change and financial regulation? What does it mean for diversity and inclusion and financial regulation? And what does it mean for the path not taken? If these nominees and appointments had not occurred, if they had been drawn from a different wing of the Democratic Party, what would have been the portfolio and agenda pursued instead? And it's one thing to say that we can do all of the above. We can focus on financial stability and climate change and diversity and inclusion and all of these other issues. And I think that to a certain extent, that's true. These conversations, these policy conversations are happening everywhere, and we need not have the same conversation to make good progress. But 
to take a very practical limitation, floor time on the Senate is a precious and vanishing commodity. The attention span of the public, even the specialized public, is a uh, scarce resource. So what of the many agenda items that we might imagine, how will those priorities play out? And where the neglected priorities might be, which will inevitably occur, doesn't mean that those issues don't continue to evolve and grow. It means that they evolve and grow according to a logic that doesn't have the sunlight of uh, political control as its primary motivator. And so those, I'm not providing any answers here. I'm providing a lot of questions. But what I would put on the table is those two points. Number one, the often repeated statement that personnel is policy is so uh, vitally true. And that's importantly true. This is the, uh, the effective way of, of accountability and governance from the president uh, to financial regulate, uh, regulator, regulatory agencies. So personnel is policy. And number two, remember, there are roads taken. And where there are, there are roads not taken. And these matter. These create critical junctures, just like the Fed chair Rockefeller that we never saw. With that, I'll turn it back to you. Thanks, Peter. Our next speaker today is Catherine Judge. She is the Harvey J. Goldschmidt Professor of Law at Columbia Law School. She's an editor of the Journal of Financial Regulation, a research member of the European Corporate Governance Institute, and a member of the Financial Stability Task Force that's sponsored by the Brookings Institution and the University of Chicago's Booth School of Business. Catherine, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And it is a great lineup. So I look forward to, to learning and being able to engage with my fellow panelists as well. Um, you know, since Peter did such a nice job taking us way back, I won't quite follow uh, his footsteps. But but I actually liked where, where Adam started this out as well, which is creating a, a nice contrast with the agenda that we're looking at out of the Biden administration relative to where the Obama administration uh, was at 12 years ago. Uh, both of them were coming in during a, a period of, of economic tumult. Uh, but I'd have to say beyond that, there are also incredible differences uh, in in the moment they are stepping into. And I think that bleeds, not surprisingly at all, into their agendas, or should I say lack thereof, for financial regulatory reform. So I think in teeing this up, we were asked to talk a little bit both about what we thought should happen and what we thought would happen in the Biden administration. Um, as a financial regulatory nerd, I, of course, think there's a lot of things that should happen because I look at what happened in March and I see a lot of near misses. So I see a room for, for a lot of work to be done uh, to create the resilience that we'd want out of the, the financial system. That being said, I don't see it being a top priority, at least in the near term. And that's an important qualifier I'm going to come back and revisit for the Obama or for the Biden administration. And this is very different than Obama. So Obama was dealing with an economic crisis that really was the byproduct of a crisis that emanated from the financial system. So we had a slow build in the financial crisis, and then that spilled over and created real challenges for the real economy. Um, and then partly because the, the financial uh, system had been the, the locus, it was clear that that had to be top priority. So whether it was Dodd-Frank or something that looked different than Dodd-Frank, massive financial regulatory reform was clearly on the table. And so it was on the table, one, because the crisis revealed incredible weaknesses and deficiencies that needed to be addressed, but also because the political will was there. 
people were angry and they knew who to blame and the people to blame were the banks and the non-bank financial system. And so that, that anger meant Congress had no choice but to try to do something. By contrast, the, the COVID crisis has been uh, very different uh, in just about every regard. So first of all, the cause was clearly a public health crisis. It's a public health crisis that then created an economic crisis because of the behavioral changes that were required, but precisely because everybody recognized it was this truly exogenous shock. Uh, there was far greater willingness on behalf of both the Congress and, and regulators to, to respond very, very aggressively, uh, very, very quickly, and a lot more public support for virtually all of the, the support that's been provided, including support from the Fed that is similar in kind to what it did in a much more controversial way and with a much more pushback in 2008. So I'd say just as, as an initial matter, uh, we're still recovering. We still have this K-shaped recovery and, and we are far from, from where we were uh, just over a year ago. And so because of that, I think, you know, major financial regulatory reform is just, it's, it's not going to be the, the first order of the day for the Biden administration. They have a lot of other things on, on their plate. And going back to Peter's point about appointments, which I agree with completely, I think we can see that even not just in who's been nominated, but where the focus is. Uh, generally speaking, the CFPB is not where you start out if what you're worried about is financial stability. But here we want there to be accountability. We want there to be a sense of rigor, you know, that, that, that something's happening. And so I think just looking at where they're starting with the SEC, which has traditionally been about investor protection, the CFPB, which is about consumer protection more broadly, it's very different than where you'd be starting um, if what you were planning to do was major financial regulatory reform. Uh, the, the qualifiers I, I want to put out there, and I think they're significant. One is, I mean, it's been really interesting to watch the furry that's been created by the GameStop episode and the, the congressional hearings that we're already having. And part of what's been interesting is just watching the various narratives that have built up around that episode, despite the fact that, that one might say that none of the actors involved are particularly sympathetic. Um, is a real reminder that people remain frustrated with the, the deep structural inequities that, that do exist, and that there's a persistent perception that a lot of those can be traced to a fundamentally unfair level and unlevel playing field in the field of finance. And so I think that there, that we don't know yet, but there is, and I don't think it's gonna end ultimately be about kind of like payment for order flow. But there is the possibility that apart from like kind of whatever jiggling that that might bring about regulatorily, that that type of episode opens up bigger questions about about what we want the financial system to be doing and whether regulatory reform might help it to achieve kind of some of the other aims that we want it to achieve. Uh, the second reason that there, there could be something eventually happening in financial regulatory reform is, of course, the, the Fed's new framework which I think people are, are very excited about. And going back to, to Peter's comments about the different groups within the Democratic Party, um, I mean, I think more people uh, across the spectrum are, are worried about things like persistent inequality right now. And I think there is a, a growing perception that if the Fed is willing to allow the economy to run hot, that that could actually play a, a meaningful role in helping to address some of the inequality that exists because that's where we're going to get 
both the wage gains and employment gains among the, the groups that have traditionally been most marginalized. But the Fed has been honest that the only way they're going to allow the economy to run hot is if there's not a, a threat to stability that lurks from their doing so. So I think one of the, the stronger claims that could be made for why financial regulatory reform should be on the table is that you need targeted reforms to enhance systemic resilience if we want the Fed to be able to, to pursue the course and really allow the, the economy to run hot as, as so many people want it to do. And, and last, returning to, to Peter's point that personnel is policy, um, you know, I think we're seeing a mixed bag here. So as he pointed out, we do have Janet Yellen now as the Secretary uh, of the Treasury. I could be, not be more excited about that. He also pointed to, to Nellie Lang as the expected nominee or actual nominee for, for Undersecretary for Domestic Finance. If you look at what they've both been doing at Brookings, it's all about financial stability. If you look at what Yellen's comments were over the summer, it was clear concern that there were weaknesses in the non-bank financial sector and that, that those were known even before the episode in March and that the FSOC hadn't adequately dealt with them. So on the one hand, these are top priority for people who are now key economic policymakers. At the same time, I think what we've seen of Yellen uh, in recent weeks is that she recognizes her role now is also being the person who takes the Biden administration priorities and, and provides the, the voice perspective of economic policymaking uh, to that, that broader agenda. And she recognizes that financial regulatory reform isn't already part of that agenda. So I do think over time, and I think that's why it's the difference between what we expect out of the next year versus kind of the next four years, I think having these folks in place having the lessons we should have learned and hopefully are still learning from March, which reveal that there are significant fragilities uh, that could have resulted in, in much more dire outcomes if we didn't have the, the magnitude of response we did, means that hopefully we will see some progress uh, on financial regulatory reform, but, but I don't see it happening in the immediate future. Thank you, Catherine. Uh, Catherine, you, you alluded to the congressional hearings that happened recently on, on GameStop. As it happens, our third speaker today is one of the witnesses of that hearing. It's Jennifer Schulp. She is the director of financial regula regulation studies at the Cato Institute's uh, Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives, where she researches and writes on the regulation of securities and capital markets. Previously, she was at the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, better known as FINRA, uh, where she was director in FINRA's Department of Enforcement, representing FINRA in investigations and disciplinary proceedings related to violations of federal securities law and self-regulatory organization rules. Jennifer, thanks for joining us today. Got to unmute myself. Um, major faux pas. Thanks so much for having me here. Um, and I, I appreciate the, the ground that my fellow panelists have kind of laid to, to start this conversation. Um, my focus is on securities markets. And I think that in what I'm going to talk about with the SEC, we have a little bit more of a clear picture as to what a Biden agenda is going to look like than we might in some other areas of financial regulation. And I think that um, it's clear that it is not focused on the kind of financial stability concerns that Professor Judge was talking about, um, and it's it's focused elsewhere. Uh, Gary Gensler hasn't been confirmed yet, but it's likely to be soon, and he's already been passed out of the committee. 
But the acting chair of the SEC, Allison Heron Lee, had already taken several steps to advance the Biden administration's agenda while we've been waiting for Gensler's confirmation. And I want to talk just a little bit about some specific agenda items that I think we're going to see a lot of interest in and action on from a Biden SEC in the coming year and years. I think the first is an obvious place, and that's in the area of ESG, um, which stands for Environmental, Social and Governance, um, for those of you that may not be familiar The Biden administration-wide focus on climate change um, is is forefront in in the SEC's priorities at this point. There's lots of facets when we talk about ESG um, in the SEC's realm, um, public company disclosures, ESG investments and and disclosure of strategies, um, systemic risk that might affect brokers, investment advisors, markets, other market participants, just to name a few. Um, And the SEC had, well, the Democratic members of the commission had already been laying a groundwork for what a Biden administration agenda would look like in this area um, during 2020. Once Biden was sworn in, um, Acting Commissioner Allison Heron Lee hit the ground running. Um, she's already created and filled a position for a senior policy advisor for climate and ESG in her office. They've announced a review of the 2010 guidance to public companies about climate change disclosure and directed the Division of Corporate Finance to enhance the focus on climate-related disclosures and its review of corporate filings and has created an enforcement task force made up of 22 people to proactively identify ESG-related misconduct. I think it's clear that ESG is going to be a huge priority for the SEC going forward, and we can expect to see not only enforcement actions on existing rules and more guidance, but proposed rules, working groups, and and a lot of work being done in this area in general. I think that the focus on ESG uh, has a potential to take away uh, resources from other potential activity at the SEC. I mean, we'll have to wait and see as that that goes through. But but ESG touches just about every aspect of the SEC's rule writing divisions and others and can be kept very busy in this space. Uh, I think the Biden administration was not quite counting on a lot of the priorities that have been thrust in its lap due to the GameStop phenomenon. Um, It wouldn't be a talk about financial regulation if we didn't talk about GameStop these days. Um, Some of the issues that have been simmering with respect to GameStop, uh, like payment for order flow and zero commission trading, had already been on the SEC's radar, but it's now taken on new political urgency. Uh, besides ESG, this was the other big question at Gensler's confirmation hearing, and there continues to be a bevy of congressional hearings on this subject. Um, the SEC is focused on investigating what happened and has announced that it's going to be looking into whether there are any additional short-selling disclosures or changes to short-selling rules that are needed. But I think we're also likely to see another review of payment for order flow, something which the SEC has done several times over the course of the past decades. 
And I think that we're going to see the SEC heavily involved in evaluating shortening the settlement cycle, uh, among some other areas. But as GameStop continues to make news, it's, it's had a surprising amount of staying powder power for a for a financial markets question um, in the general press. I think the SEC is going to not be able to avoid being focused on some of the issues that they continue to get press. Um, Two other things on the SEC's agenda that I'll I'll briefly mention, um, and maybe we'll get to talk about them a little bit more. The first is regulation best interest, which was the SEC's update to the suitability standard for broker advice. It continues to be a source of criticism for those on the left, but it's unlikely that it's going to be repealed and replaced with with what the progressive prefer, the fiduciary standard. I think this is a little bit of a longer term priority for the SEC. There's space in the rule for guidance about um, what exactly is compliant with the rule in the in the realm of advice and conflicts mitigation. And I expect that we'll see more out of the SEC trying to put more teeth behind regulation best interest. But I think that's a longer term priority. And and the final thing that I'll mention is regulation in the crypto space. Uh, Gensler has a background here, and I think there are a lot of people hopeful that um, he's going to dig in and help bring some clarity to regulation of crypto assets. And this is a place where there might be space for some bipartisan cooperation. Um, Republican Commissioner Peirce has been very vocal here. And I think that there, there's an opportunity to, to work together. Um, what's interesting about the crypto space is that it, it touches on kind of all areas of financial regulation and just about every regulator in the space has tried to kind of plant a flag. So kind of comprehensive crypto regulation may require um, efforts at the congressional level to, to um to kind of settle some of those turf wars. And I don't know that there's a path forward that's been kind of considered by the SEC or others that that's an obvious path um, in the crypto space at this time. Just to kind of wrap up, I think the SEC has a clear agenda, um, but it's an agenda that, that doesn't necessarily follow on kind of the, the COVID times or, or getting the, the economy back on track after COVID. Um, these are some longer standing uh, issues that um, progressives and those on the left have been um, talking about pre-COVID and pre-need um, for economic recovery. So um, it's going to be interesting to see where this all goes. Um, I look forward to talking about it today. Thanks, Jennifer. I'll give all three speakers a chance to maybe offer any further comments or reactions they have, given that we've already put so much on the table. And we'll go in the same order that they originally spoke. But while they ponder that for a moment, I just want to remind the audience uh, that you too can submit questions. Just do it through the uh, Q&A function of Zoom. Uh, put it into the Q&A, and I'll get to as many questions as I can. Um, so let's circle back to Peter. Peter, um, do you have any any reactions to what's been said so far? Anything you want to further elaborate? I was reminded listening to both uh, Kate and Jennifer just how much uh, the agenda of uh, of action is 
almost taken as a, an exogenous uh, event. What I mean by that is that we have, as Kate pointed out so well, I mean, um, there are few, if any, issues of importance facing the economy and the financial system that Secretary Yellen uh, and now undersecretary, or soon to be, uh, if confirmed, undersecretary Lang haven't faced at some point in their long careers. Um, but the question is, is not anytime these, these um, appointees are trying to accomplish their agenda, they're doing it in an environment that is constantly subject to um, external headlines, shocks and events, other coalitions trying to shape that agenda. Um, we just don't have a system much to the good of that system where political appointees get to by, by fiat or dictation outline what they will pursue. And so watching how that will unfold is going to be so fascinating to me um, and, and to all of us and, and very important in these ways. And indeed, that process of policy entrepreneurs coming from within the administration, within Capitol Hill, outside, lobbyists, academics, everywhere, um, people pushing to shape that agenda, not just what's on the agenda, but what order that is in, is going to be pretty important, especially if, uh, it, as is likely to occur, uh, as we return to normalcy and with the fiscal support that we're seeing, uh, that we have some boom times. These might be times, as, as Kate pointed out, that we're facing less a, a the urgency of this is a deeply broken system, so we need to fix it, and more things appear to be going pretty well, but there are lots of broken things under this system. How do we uh, uh, attack that which is broken? The other thing I would say, in response to Jennifer's point about the what, this, the surge in attention to um, in the capital markets and corporate governance context, we talk about ESG, environmental, social, and governance, but in financial regulation, we just talk about uh, uh, in come with them a variety of other terms uh, is the difference between what you might think of on a spectrum between non-coercive activity versus coercive activity. So coercive activity where the government has a monopoly on something, you just can't even choose an alternative. Money is an example here. Two uh, consequences where if you disobey, uh, then there will be real consequences to you. You have to pay fines, you can go to jail, regulatory action versus what we're seeing a lot more of right now which is much more on uh, the government's convening authority and allocation of research interests and exploration. There, the fact that the SEC is convening a lot of exploration and research around the intersections of capital markets and climate change, I think is a very, very good thing. I think the fact that the Fed just created a new position uh, that the uh, that Kevin Styro, the, uh, the former head of supervision at uh, the New York Fed, will now occupy at the board, which is supervision and climate change, a very good thing. And so focusing on that non-coercive side until we gain enough expertise and experience to recognize just exactly how the legislative apparatus of financial regulation fits with the things that we're learning about these new issues, um, I think that that is not only healthy, but it's extremely important so that these regulators uh, can gain the expertise necessary within their bailiwicks to focus on new issues as they arise. Thanks, Peter. Kate, anything to add? Yeah, I will jump in. Um, Jennifer did a, a really great job, I think, of providing a more grounded perspective of what, what it looks like going forward with the SEC. And that was actually where I cut myself off because, of course, I had more I wanted to say than time to say it. And that was while I don't see kind of like the really big picture Dodd-Frank level financial regulatory reform or even more modest than Dodd-Frank, but kind of con big congressional action uh, coming in the near future. 
there's been a lot of stuff that has happened over the past four years, and there's a lot of room uh, at the regulatory level for very meaningful change. So I think both a combination of a lot of things that seem small individually, but in aggregate uh, were, were very significant in effect over the past four years are going to be revisited and reevaluated uh, in light of the, the priorities of a, a new administration. Um, but I also think it's going to be going forward, what is it we're trying to achieve? And, and I think this is where the, the climate issue that both Jennifer and, and Peter raised is really central. I mean, one of the things that we have seen is already kind of this broad embrace across financial regulators generally saying this is something that we have not been making a, a, a core priority. And again, it can be both the the challenges associated with climate change, but also the policy changes that might arise out of climate change. And, and if you look at kind of the Fed's most recent financial stability sport report, the mechanisms there are significant. And so what we're finally seeing is, uh, I would say the U.S. almost kind of catching up in a way uh, to, to where the, the rest of the world is at. I think we're still behind. But what we're doing is not just kind of catching up by having the Fed jump in where the ECB and the Bank of England now, even with this broader mandate, um, have or, already are and are actually out in front, but instead more of an effort across different regulatory agencies to figure out like, how do we, how do we deal with this? And I, I think it really is going to be incredibly interesting to watch going forward because the unknowns continue to loom large. I mean, like, what is it we're trying to get at through climate-related disclosures? What is it? Is it really about, is about risk factors as we've traditionally conceived them? Is it about feedback loops that we have yet to do a good job ever requiring disclosure about, but that is necessitated now uh, because of the exigencies of the circumstance? Um, how does this interact across different regulatory bodies? I mean, one of the really interesting dynamics here is, of course, the U.S. remains the outlier and having insurance continue to be regulated at the state level. And of course, those property and casualty uh, policies could be repriced really, really quickly. And that's going to have huge effect on the, the firms that the SEC has to oversee. And so I think we're going to see some of the deficiencies in our regulatory structure uh, potentially coming out, but also potentially some of the benefits from the, the coordination that the FSOC might allow. So I do think just, just seeing the way that that is emerging, how quickly it is emerging, um, is really interesting. And I do think, just more to Jennifer's point, there's just going to be a lot that happens at the, the regulatory level. It just, it's not going to be a top order of business, I think, beyond that for, for a year or two, but, but we'll see. And Jennifer? Sure. And I, I think it's a very interesting discussion. I'm going to jump back in kind of on the climate change, other ESG topics, because I think both Peter and Kate bring up Important points here in that while they might be a top priority um, for the SEC or other financial regulators at this point, understanding what is going to happen or what should happen is really a very large unknown at this point. Um, a lot of the priorities have been to sit down and study this now, to to start to understand what what final rules might look like or even how we should frame them. So when we think, oh, oh, 
the Biden administration is out the gate on climate change. I don't think that there's an easy, simple playbook that is going to be implemented here and that there's a lot of room for conversation and discussion about what role is the financial system properly playing here? What role should financial regulation be taking versus um, some of the more policy regulating um, space? And I don't think those are settled yet. Um, I'm looking forward to having those conversations over the next couple of years. So so for anyone who thinks that, that ESG, now that the Democrats are heading the SEC or heading Treasury, that, that ESG is, is a done deal and that we know what the world is going to look like and new, new requirements are coming, uh, I, I think that that's jumping the gun. Um, there's a lot of work to be done in this space and a lot of table setting to be done still that, that has not been done so that we can even have the conversations about what changes need to be made, um, if any and what they should look like. Yeah, I was going to, I was originally planning on getting to the, the ESG and, and climate issues later in the conversation. Um, but maybe since we're focused on them now, it's a, it's a good place to start. And I have to admit, um, this is an issue where I, I do have, you know, put my own cards on the table. I'm a little bit concerned about where it could head, um, not because of the issue of climate change itself. And, and obviously the financial regulators could do a lot to help inform climate policy, but, for what it's worth, I'm a little worried about the financial regulators becoming more and more like everything regulators. And I know we're only talking about climate policy here, but I guess my, my big picture question about this is, is, isn't there a risk that if the financial regulators jump in sort of so energetically on this issue that, that um, obviously has economic and market ramifications, but it's not sort of a traditional focus of these agencies, isn't there a risk that future administrations will take their own sort of core policy priorities and, and try to leverage the, the financial agencies? I guess my question then is, is there something different about the climate policy that would help us avoid that problem? Or is this just the natural trajectory of the financial regulatory framework in, in our country? Kate, you focused on the issue first, so maybe I'll let you go first. Yeah, I'm happy to take this one. and I think it's a great question to ask, uh, but I would reframe it. Um, as you probably won't be surprised to know, I think part of what the pandemic made us realize is when what you're worried about is the stability of the financial system or making sure even that investors have the information that you need. Um, if there are exogenous shocks or developments, even if they're not shocks, developments that are accruing outside of the financial system, but that could have very significant ramifications in terms of the future performance of institutions or instruments, um, then it has to be, I think, at least somewhere in, in the game of what you're talking about when you're thinking about financial regulation. So I, I think the, the questions that are arising now um, are not kind of like, um, should financial regulation be the, and so one idea, and maybe this is what you're getting at, Adam, is let's make it so we starve any oil company from access to credit because we're not able to actually get through the types of reforms we wanna get through through Congress. And so instead, what we're gonna use is a financial regulatory tool to try to bring about substantive aims uh, that we cannot otherwise bring about. Uh, a different way of understanding it is we are still really focused about it on investor protection, protection and the resilience and health of the overall financial system, but we are facing a world 
where climate change is happening. It's happening more rapidly than, than many people were, were prepared for. That has huge economic repercussions. That also has distributional repercussions uh, in ways that are relevant to, again, the, the value of the firms, the business models of firms and, and the value of instruments. And we, going back to Jennifer's point, this is right. We don't have, I think there's no magic bullet. There's not like, here's a solution to what we ought to be doing. I think it's going to vary by every different regulator. I think it's going to involve a lot of trial and error. But I think when you're dealing with something where there's a lot of uncertainty, you don't start by saying it's really big, it's really uncertain. So let's just like sit back and watch until like, you know, the tsunami hits us, particularly when we've been hit by a couple of tsunamis already uh, this century. It's instead like, let's try to start to get out in front of it by figuring out what is the information we need. And so some of the, the interesting academic work that's been doing, for example, Madison Cotton has a really nice effort. And she's looking at kind of the way some of the firms that the Jennifer is talking about that are, you know, smaller uh, public companies are really reliant on what they're currently paying uh, for property and casualty insurance as their way is preparing for, for possible climate change. Uh, obviously, that's not going to work if those can be repriced dramatically very quickly, which right now they can be. Um, and again, going across the political issues, I think even people who who are more skeptical about what might actually happen on the climate change front um, are willing to recognize that there is the possibility in the United States abroad or in both of very significant policy changes that could also have the effect of, of really changing the value of assets that right now are backing a whole variety of financial instruments. So if you look at stranded assets as just the starting point for that conversation, I think you can be very skeptical of climate change and still think financial regulators need to know a lot more than they do about kind of the policy changes that could come about uh, apart from the, the climate changes uh, that we're witnessing as a way of trying to, to avoid unexpected and very, very unpleasant shocks for which we could have been more prepared. Thanks, Kate. Peter, Jennifer, do either of you have anything to, to add on this theme? Yeah, Peter, me, go ahead. Let me let me mention, I, Adam, I think your concern here is really important and uh, in the sense that uh, institutions that that follow uh, a the, the bureaucratic bureaucratic logic of of growth and drift, which is is extremely common, uh, can present problems of accountability and governance. So when you, when you suck too many functions into a single institution but have relatively narrow aperture for conducting governance and, and uh, oversight, then that can get pretty muddled. And one version of that story is that consumer financial protection located within the Fed, Congress deemed was too confusing. It was too much of a, of a bowl of spaghetti. It was better than to hive off that uh, bureaucratic and institutional function to a different institution, in this case, the CFPB. There's an opposite concern, which I wonder if troubles you as well, Adam. It certainly troubles me. And that is a concern to to say that things that are clearly a core part of the Fed's legislative mandate um, are subject to these political pressures to say you can do your thing, but not that. So even though financial, even though climate change is going to create genuine instability for the banking sector, so not the ramifications for finance, it's finance with ramifications for climate change. But you can't touch that, so we're going to separate it. And also, you can't mention anything about inequality. Race is not part of your story. You can't touch anything that deals with any kind of fiscal policy. And for a time in the 1930s, uh, um, Henry Morgenthau uh, was constantly upset at Mariner Eccles for caring about uh, the sterilization of gold flows, which we would regard as a kind of a core monetary issue under that regime. So that's the part that makes me uncomfortable. 
when we're looking at central bankers and other financial regulators trying to do central banking and financial regulation and understanding that these other risk factors, which touch on inequality, uh, the, you know, the, the heterogeneity of, uh, of allocations of, of benefits, economic benefits consistent with mandates across race and class divides, climate change, other things like that. Uh, and then also for the other side, if there are other issues that they're concerned about uh, that, uh, that touch on those core mandates, I think let the mandate stand because we create too many exemptions and exceptions and loopholes. Uh, then we have uh, uh, the opposite problem. It's not that we have too many functions stuffed within an institution. We have an institution that can't function because the political apparatus that we've imposed upon it uh, is, is too dizzying to navigate. Thanks, Peter. Jennifer? Yeah, thanks. And I, I share your concerns, Adam. Um, say not, not surprisingly given where I'm coming from, but I think that there's so many questions wrapped up in, in climate change that it's so hard to say we need to draw straight lines or clear lines as to what, um, the SEC should or shouldn't be looking at here. Um, I do worry about proposals that that move the SEC into more of the, the policy regulation as opposed to the financial regulation. Um, there's a big difference to me between a proposal that says you need to um, climate change can be a material risk and you you should be disclosing material risks versus tell us what your carbon footprint is. Uh, on an, uh, you know, on a quarterly basis when you, when you file your, um, your reports. And there's proposals out there on all sides of the aisle or on all sides of that issue that, that take different tacks. And I think we need to be very careful to make sure that the financial regulators are regulating finance <laughs> and not regulating the, um, environmental protection um, questions themselves. That said, I think that there's a lot that we can be learning. And and to Peter's earlier point about funneling research or funneling attention to some of these issues, um, particularly where we're talking about systemic risk, um, I think that that is something that, that can fall within the proper ambit here of the financial regulators. So I think that even when we are controlling for kind of the, the concern that that you've articulated. There's still work that can be done um, in the in the financial regulatory space. Um, I'm hopeful that we we keep our eyes um, focused on that work as opposed to some of the broader questions about how can financial policy be driving um, environmental policy. Um, so I I think that's where we we run into the dangers. Maybe just to stay on this for one more tick, there's a question from the audience. Uh, Nicholas Anthony asks Peter um, if he's if Peter has seen incidents in the Fed's history where things like climate change policy came up within the Fed, but as Nicholas says, were shelved or sent to another agency. I mean, Peter, you've studied the history of the Fed uh, more than just about anybody. Um, is there sort of an analogous context that you'd point to on this? I'm not sure about the last part. Lots of folks are focused on this, but uh, absolutely. In the 1950s, there was a growing sense that the concentration in banking had uh, just kind of jumped the uh, jumped the rails, such that the existing antitrust environment uh, created during the progressive era, was, which had exemptions for banks, uh, was no longer sufficient. And so we had a series of uh, pieces of legislation 
the bank mer- uh, culminating in the Bank Merger Act in 1960, but also uh, the Bank Holding Company Act uh, to a lesser extent in 1956. And during from 1960 until those statute was amended in 1966, um, we had something of a free-for-all on antitrust review for uh, and merger review for banks, sometimes where they would come to blows between the comptroller and the Fed uh, and the Justice Department. I don't know, literally, I haven't found any like actual brawling that's going on, but man, did they say some awfully hateful and hurtful things uh, uh, to each other. And eventually, um, with a, a strong shove from Congress, although each with a, a role to play, the merger review process is now much more deferential to the DOJ, uh, still with the Fed having an important role to play. And there have been some people who've been uh, really fighting to reinvigorate bank merger review. Jeremy Kress, for example, uh, at Michigan has done some good work on this. But that's a big example, all right, where the antitrust concerns from one perspective might be very, very different from the stability concerns of another. Need not look further than 2008 to recognize that the vehicle choice for the Fed was indeed concentration, having J.P. Morgan acquire Bear Stearns and Washington Mutual, having Wells Fargo acquire Wachovia, um, presenting even conflict of interest waivers for lawyers representing both sides on various or all sides on various deals. That's a financial stability logic in the moment of crisis that looks a lot different from antitrust logic um, uh, in, in other times. And so that's a really big example. But indeed, the, the history of the Fed, top to bottom, is a history of uh, getting out of its lane, uh, redrawing its lane, having other people redraw its lane, and being in constant dialogue uh, with various uh, financial regulators and other regulators, members of Congress, other politicians. Thanks, Peter. Um, we'll get to financial stability in, in just a moment, the FSOC in just a moment. But just one last question on ESG. It comes from Richard Morrison in the audience, and he alludes to the, the Labor Department's uh, rule that was promulgated late in the Trump administration on on ESG and and retirement investments. And Richard asks, uh, do we expect uh, President Biden's Department of Labor to formally repeal the Trump era rules on ESG and ERISA um, and proxy issues? And he asks, will the SEC's new enthusiasm for ESG uh, here have a have a turf impact or have an impact here or a turf war? I'll just throw out it to anybody who would like to take it. Um, what should we expect on on those Trump era rules and and the working relationship between, say, the SEC and labor as as they they both try to regulate in the public interest, but with you know different areas of specific focus? I'm happy to jump in on that. Go ahead, one. Jennifer. <laughs> Um, well, the Department of Labor has announced that it won't be enforcing either of those rules. Um, I think that came out yesterday or the day before. So I think that's the first step um, towards change from the Biden era Department of Labor. Whether it's a formal repeal um, or a or guidance that, that takes the teeth out of those rules, I think will remain to be seen. But I wouldn't expect that either of the Trump era um, rules really continue to function in the way the Trump um, administration intended them to. Um, as for a turf war, uh, DOL and, um, and the SEC have kind of been at each other's throats on this um, for years now, uh, that was the uh, in the Obama era as well. 
I'm not sure that that's going to change. Um, DOL certainly views their jurisdiction here um, over the over ERISA um, strongly, as they should, and view that their um, their role in guiding ERISA fiduciary responsibilities is separate and apart from anything that the SEC might do here. Um, I think there will be cooperation between the two agencies. There, there, there was in the Obama administration. There was in the Trump administration. But I, I think that we may continue to see separate paths um, from both of them as they both wrestle with these types of issues. Anybody else want to weigh in on that? Go ahead, Kate. Yeah, I, I want to jump in a little bit uh, bigger picture, but related to that, because Jennifer has made some some nice points. She did a nice job uh, again, I think answering the precise question as was asked, but, but I think there is a, this broader question of kind of like, what are the, where the agenda is being set. And so one of the interesting things, and it relates a little bit to climate, but it really does come into play as well with, with the growth of ESG is one of the, uh, I don't know if it's the new administration um, that is the, the origins of saying, you know, these ESG factors matter. What we've seen is investors express an incredibly strong preference as we're seeing a huge amount of money flowing into funds that are making all kinds of claims. And so what we're really seeing is even if what you, all you're, you're trying to do is make sure that investors are actually getting the investments that they think that they're getting, um, there's a need to make this a, a, a top priority because I think there's been a, a lot more, uh, many more claims made uh, that can necessarily be substantiated regarding the, the ways that you are making decisions about allocation. And so um, I think Jennifer's right. It can have some substantive effects on decisions that firms are making, but I think that is not necessarily um, coming just in response to an administration, but but instead is really coming in the first instance uh, from investors who, who are saying that this is something that they care a lot about. And generally speaking, once investors start to prioritize something, I think part of the role of the SEC is making sure that they, they have the information um, that, that is going to be useful for them. Um, in making those decisions. Thanks, Kate. Is it okay if I turn now to, to the FSOC? Uh, you know, when I began today's conversation, I alluded to the fact that the Obama administration was tasked with first helping to enact Dodd-Frank and then to initially implement it. And at the time, I always found FSOC, the Financial Stability Oversight Council, the for those who are listening in but aren't, aren't aware, it's the interagency council that's sort of headquartered and, and chaired by the, the Secretary of the Treasury in, in the Treasury Department um, with, with the, the Office of Financial Research. But the, the council itself contains the includes the, the heads of a number of agencies, the chairs of some of the multi-member commissions and so on. I always found that to be fascinating. And back when Naomi Rao ran the center, I, I wrote a, a working paper on it back in the day. And I always wondered why I didn't get more attention. And I just get the sense that, I mean, not my paper getting more attention. There's obvious reasons for that. I mean, the F-stock not getting more attention. And I always kind of wondered what would happen in the next administration. And I just get the sense that, that people are focused more and more on the F-stock, on, on its possible role in, in financial regulation broadly, and, and really sort of having a, you might almost call it FSOC 2.0, another opportunity to, to continue to build this institution. Am I exaggerating the amount of focus that's being put on FSOC right now? And, and what, might we make, what might we expect uh, in the Biden administration? I'll open that up to anybody who wants to take it. Uh, Peter, you're, I saw you nod. Maybe I'll give it to you first. Yeah, I'm also really eager to hear um, 
from my co-panelists on this. Kate's thought a lot about uh, about SSOC and uh, and that institutional array. You know, when it was um, we were going through parallel debates uh, in a transatlantic context about what uh, how we should institutionalize financial stability oversight um, in the ECB, in the UK, in the United States. Of course, these are conversations that are happening all over the world. Um, but the, the parallel between Bank of England and the Fed, for example, or the UK and the United States is really interesting. The Financial uh, Policy Committee is one of the three policy committees of the Bank of England, Monetary Policy, Potential Regulatory Authority, the other two. Um, uh, but we don't have that at the Fed. And that was a choice by Congress. Interestingly, it's a choice. He mentioned the Financial Stability Report, which is just a few years old. This is a, uh, a priority of, of Jay Powell. Uh, of the Fed, and it was essentially saying uh, we have to focus on financial stability. We weren't given its exclusive uh, authority uh, under Dodd-Frank, but of course, financial stability is closely tethered to the Fed's other mandates, and so they have taken a real role in using macroprudential and microprudential supervision regulation to think through exactly what the financial stability implications will be of various uh, actions, and they have done that while the FSOC has atrophied mostly to nothing. And maybe that's the right answer. Maybe the FSOC should atrophy to nothing. We've had other committee precedents, the Quadriad, for example, in the 50s and 60s, which was a group of interagency heads meeting at the White House, sometimes even attended by the president. There was a president's working group on financial uh, regulation that uh, had existed. And none of these really did much other than serving a kind of coordination function. Now, uh, Nelly Lang and, uh, who has that, uh, who will have confirmed that, uh, uh, in her portfolio, the FSOC in her portfolio is extremely unlikely just to say, you know what? The Fed sort of figured this out. Let's go ahead and let the FSOC continue to be, uh, uh, to be empty. And so I think we will see a resurgence there. Um, you know, Tim Geithner derisively called the FSOC idea when it was first proposed the Jedi Council. Um, and I, I wonder, if there is a future for FSOC, even with a significantly expanded um, uh, uh, mandate from a supportive Secretary of the Treasury, which we'll have from Secretary Yellen. I wonder about this just because making decisions, important decisions by committee is very, very hard to do. And so I'm, I'm more sympathetic to a financial policy committee type uh, structure within a single institution like the Bank of England. Um, but that's in part because we haven't really seen the FSOC uh, given the opportunity to thrive over more than one political cycle. And I see, by the way, that Stephen Dewey uh, raises the, the same question about the role of the FSOC in the administration. Kate, do you want to, obviously you focus so much on this. Why don't you jump in? Yeah. So, I mean, I could spend the rest of the, the session on this. So I'll have to rein myself in a little bit. Now, maybe not quite that much, <laughs> but give it a few minutes. Um, so I, I do think that we are going to see a resurgence of the FSOC. Uh, I do think it's actually absolutely critical. I don't think we can just have the Fed deal with this. I mean, it's important to keep in mind its origins. Uh, the U.S., the United States has what remains the most fragmented financial regulatory structure of any country out there, right? Like they do all these surveys of all the different like structures you could have. And then there's always like, and then there's the United States because it doesn't fit any of them. And there's real um, inefficiencies that arise from that. When we still have three different bank regulators, we have two different market regulators, we have housing, we have, you know, it's just, and so the FSOC was this effort to say like, okay, if we're not going to have the political will to do anything about the structure, let's at least get everybody uh, around one table 
Um, I think it hasn't worked well in part because I don't know if we've had a secretary um, as devoted as Yellen is to making it work. So personally, I am very excited to, to watch what happens under her watch. Um, but I also think the, the deficiencies in the structure that we've seen um, over the past, you know, 10 and a half years also suggest that in my ideal world, we would potentially also make some of the change, some changes to it. I mean, one of the challenges is it's just so big. And, and Peter referred to the president's working group, which I think was part of the role model uh, for the FSOC. That reemerged during the past crisis. Like that actually ended up being a very effective mechanism through which there were ongoing conversations about how to contain things. When there was idea of we're like, okay, we need to do something about money market mutual funds. It wasn't FSOC this time that was issuing it. It was, you know, kind of the current version of the president's working group. Uh, so I think part of what we're seeing is it's large and some wieldy. The, I think the bigger challenge is, um, you know, the report that's supposed to say like, okay, here's what's going on and here's what we need to do something about. The idea was to have all the different heads sign it and that way they, everybody has some buy-in on financial stability. But the reality is like they still have their primary mandates and they haven't actually taken on systemic risk as something that they need to, to worry about, despite the fact that I would say non-bank finance continues to remain uh, one of the key challenges and oftentimes it's interactions. Uh, so we really do need to think more broadly about kind of staffing and mandates at the other agencies. And, and so that waters down kind of the mechanisms uh, that, that were meant to create accountability. So. So I, I am hopeful that it's going to do more. Um, I'm hopeful they managed to, to bring in somebody um, more committed to also reviving the OFR, which is a, a critical additional instrument to, to create the data necessary. Um, but I do think that there are um, some weaknesses in it that, that in my ideal state of worlds uh, would also get addressed if we were going to try to, to really make resilience the, the priority we needed to in a way that we envisioned when we created the FSOC. Thanks, Kate. Uh, Jennifer, do you have anything to add on, on the subject? Well, here's another question. It comes from uh, Philip Wallach, uh, former colleague at Brookings, now my, my colleague at, at AEI. Uh, he writes, I'm a big fan of Matt Levine's, by way of background, the columnist at Bloomberg, uh, Matt Levine writes a, the probably the best daily um, commentary column of any subject every day on financial markets and regulation. Uh, Philip says, I'm a big fan of Matt Levine's continuing uh, everything is securities fraud feature where every day uh, Matt Levine identifies some new securities fraud lawsuit that's really uh, focused on, on you know, corporate malfeasance of some sort, some crisis at a company that, that then becomes sort of reframed as a securities fraud lawsuit. Philip asks, I wonder if any of the panelists would be willing to speculate on the trajectory of that phenomenon in the Biden administration. Now, without presuming that you're all daily readers of Matt Levine, although you should be, um, I wonder if, if you have any thoughts on, on the SEC's enforcement agenda and, and sort of the breadth of possible courses of action it might take on, on securities regulation. I know we've already touched on that some with respect to, to climate and so on, but if anybody has anything else to add on the SEC, I'd, I'd welcome it. Jennifer? Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in there. I mean, I think the SEC's enforcement authority here is, is going to probably remain mostly focused on what it's always been focused on. Um, it, 
Matt Levine and everything in securities fraud. I'm, I'm a huge fan of the theory um, because we see it playing out in private securities litigation far more often than we see it playing out in the SEC's enforcement realm. Um, I think we'll have an early test here as we're looking at the SEC's task force on enforcement for um, climate disclosure. But, but even that is pretty narrow. And I think that the SEC's enforcement authority is likely to remain focused on, on key disclosure failures. Uh, what I think is worth mentioning is one of the really the only securities law case in front of the Supreme Court this term, um, Goldman Sachs v. Arkansas Teachers Pension, it's a really long pension fund name that I forget the name of, um, has elements of the everything is securities fraud theory. And the Biden administration um, solicitor general's office has stepped in on Goldman Sachs's side for the most part um, to argue um, that the Second Circuit um, was incorrect in, in kind of a broader reading on a class certification issue. So, you know, reading the tea leaves there, which is always a dangerous thing to do, um, I don't see a front and center move by the Biden administration to really broaden the, the general idea of enforcement authority for the SEC in this space. Private litigation is going to depend an awful lot on what the courts look like. And I, the courts uh, look pretty conservative at this point, although there has been success um, on some of these um, kind of broader theories of securities laws in the courts, too. I hate to say we'll have to wait and see, but um, I think we'll have to wait and see. And I, I don't think that with all of the other potential things that the SEC can look at in enforcement, that this is where they're going to head. Let's pan back to the big picture for a moment and think about the relationship between uh, the White House and, and the executive agencies and, and the, the traditionally independent commissions and boards that play such an important role in financial and markets regulation, maybe more than any other part of government. And we've talked about them already, the SEC, the Fed, and others we haven't mentioned directly, like the FDIC and so on. I mean, just in very general terms, what do you think is the ideal relationship between uh, the president and, and those independent agencies? And I don't mean sort of the perennial constitutional questions about agency independence, although obviously that popped up in the CFPB case and there's the, the still pending case in the Supreme Court about the FHFA. But the, the financial regulatory commissions, they're not part of OIRA's uh, overview of, of the costs and benefits of regulation. The independent agencies, they often... Uh, you know, partner with the executive branch and the White House, the president on these issues, but they, you know, theoretically have their own measure of independence. What's the, the, the right balance for an administration to strike? And do you think it's time for any formal reforms at OIRA or elsewhere to kind of formally bring those independent institutions into the, the, the leadership of, of the White House in a more concrete way than they already are? Can we uh, in on this? Uh, and again, I know this is something that, um, that, that Katie has thought a lot about as well. Um, I'm extremely resistant to the idea of any idealized relationship between, um, and among financial regulators, central banks and, uh, and the political process in part because the very flexibility and evolution of those political processes and what priorities should be for the institutional framework that's already been imposed is the way that accountability occurs. So in other words, if you have a kind of 
uh, rigidity imposed either by the judiciary or by norms that become too sticky, that they're not adaptive to political contingency. And we end up getting government by technocracy, even in the places where technocracy does not have a comparative advantage over representative democracy. Now, at the same time, uh, there is, uh, you can take that the, the institutional separations that do exist and have been maintained legislatively through norms and sometimes even through uh, the judiciary um, should have something of a status quo bias in their favor. And they do have that. Um, and so I think, I think what I would hope to see from the Biden administration is they think about, um, Secretary Yellen's former stomping grounds is a respect and acknowledgement that there is an institutional separation here. And I don't think there's any real risk of, of that being eliminated. But at the same time, uh, a, a financial policy writ large, economic policy writ large, even elements of monetary policy, uh, such as, such as the, uh, monetary fiscal divide are not the exclusive purview of the central bank. And these issues have a huge amount of distributional consequences and policy reorientations that should be and that are sensitive to political processes. And so I think that that is extremely important. And I think that when central bankers um, are in a posture of making value judgments with very important distributional consequences and then want to exempt themselves from any kind of public scrutiny in the name of central bank independence, that they're creating, uh, they're committing a real error here, uh, and that's something that should be should be corrected. Thanks, Jennifer. Would you like to jump in, and we'll let Kate have the final word on this subject. Actually, I'm interested to hear what Kate has on the says on the subject. Bye, <laughs> Kate. All right. Well, given the floor, I'll take it. Um, I, I think Peter summed the situation up very nicely, and I think is that we need to expect and want heterogeneity. Um, and I would say that's heterogeneity across time and heterogeneity across different issues. And again, I start with the byproduct of the fact we have this incredibly, not only do we have a lot of independent regulators in the financial regulatory realm, but we also have this incredibly fragmented system within the financial realm um, that are more and less good at communicating what they are doing or, or shifting priorities in various ways. Um, so on the one hand, I do think um, independence is uh, too coarse of a term, and there's been a, a lot of great research in this, but, but really kind of looking at congressional oversight and the, the multiple mechanisms through which we create democratic accountability that I think we, we all see as, as being one of the priorities um, that, and, and that is possible through a whole variety of ways without increasing uh, direct accountability to the White House. So I think that there, there continues to be a real role for that um, as a way of actually enhancing rather than reducing like, like accountability. Uh, I think when you talk about the, the range of different objectives that different financial regulators are trying to achieve to try to mush it all together and say like, okay, like how is the executive doing in this actually reduces rather than enhancing accountability because you want to be able to see, okay, like what is this regulator doing? Where have they failed to act or where have they acted uh, in ways that, that have or not achieved the outcomes that we want to? Um, but I also think the degree of independence really varies. Uh, so I think during times of systemic distress, I actually think we need 
far more coordination and far more communication uh, among otherwise independent agencies. Um, so I think that the one rule of the FSOC that we haven't seen that much, but I would like to see come to life, is when things start to go wrong, uh, that is a, a locus. It's not just the president's working group, which is shrouded uh, behind kind of this veil of secrecy, but this alternative body uh, that where there is more uh, public accountability and transparency is actually one of the mechanisms through which you get the, the needed coordination and communication. Uh, going back to my point earlier about the OFR really not living up I think to anybody's hopes originally, I think one of the key challenges is the other financial regulators have not wanted to work with UFR. So I think there's a, a fine line between kind of like trying to protect your turf um, and maintaining independence uh, when there's a reason for independence in terms of being able to achieve uh, long term agendas. I apologize. Sorry, I thought that was off. Um, but yeah, so I will let Jennifer jump in now. Go ahead, Jennifer. Yeah, and I can just say I've spent far less time thinking about this question than either Peter or Kate have, um, in large part because the area that I operate in with the SEC, although the SEC is independent, uh, traditions and norms have, have really eroded the independence of the SEC. Um, you always have a chairman from the governing party who's who's been who's been appointed by the president um, in question. Uh, the SEC has a lot of the hallmarks of accountability, both to the executive and to Congress, that you would ex expect in a less independent agency. Um, so I tend to spend less time there. I, I think that Kate's points about um, fragmentation um, and and the difficulties and the frictions that that bring into the system are well taken. Um, and I, I think that there needs to be better coordination on a whole host of issues in the financial regulatory space, um, regardless of either independence of the agency or non-independence. Um, I think that there are a lot of ways to hold agencies accountable, even if they are, um, quote unquote, independent. Um, but as I said, I, I've spent far less time thinking about this, this topic than, than Kate or Peter. Kate, I almost wonder if that phone call was Janet Yellen asking you to run OFR, but we'll set that aside. Um, you mentioned a moment ago uh, Congress, and we probably should spend a little time on Congress. Um, what's the best thing Congress will be doing right now, at least in its oversight capacity? I mean, I'd also welcome thoughts on where, where you think Congress ought to consider legislating. But given how Congress focuses so much on its, its these days on its oversight capacity, once it gets the confirmation uh, process sort of through the pipeline, what would you like to see Congress focus on? Uh, Kate, would you like to go first? Sure. I'm always happy to jump in on this. And again, I think there's probably more legislatively than, than others might in terms of what we need to do. But I do think the very process of, of recognizing um, congressional hearings as being an important mechanism for not only creating accountability among the regulators, but also like providing transparency and understanding to the public about what's going on in finance is absolutely key. So, I mean, personally, I'm very excited to see uh, Senator Brown uh, assume the chairmanship uh, in the Senate uh, because he has, you know, I, and again, I grew up in Michigan. So I could just say there's like a big Midwest bias. I, I totally have a huge Midwest bias, but but I'm a fan of, of some of the questions over kind of like who's being served here and having them translated and discussed in ways uh, that allow people to understand what's going on. I mean, I think one of the big challenges we have in financial regulation is too often the important issues 
are not well understood on a broad basis. And they get spun in particular ways that they really miss out on oftentimes like what's at stake. And so part of what I see um, hopefully going forward is not only kind of like pressuring financial regulators to, to answer in particular ways, um, but in, in helping to set the, the long-term stage for an agenda, uh, really increasing kind of public awareness and public discourse about what's at stake and, and what's going on and, and how things might be done better. Thanks, Kate. Jennifer? I mean, you've already seen Congress up close, I suppose. Yeah, I, say, I largely agree with that. I think Congress has an important oversight responsibility here. Um, but at the same time, I, I think that the oversight responsibility should be focused on oversight rather than kind of the, the show trials um, and the showmanship that, that Congress can often fall prey to. Um, I think a lot of times the, the hearings that um, are meant to oversight the financial agencies simply turn into political theater rather than a true understanding or a true desire to understand the issues. Um, so I like effective oversight. I'm not sure that Congress is always great at giving us that. Peter? I am uh, I'm such a huge believer in, uh, in the role of Congress in financial and monetary uh, and economic policy. And we had something of a test in 2020 that many of us were nervous about. And that was that because the Fed was on its front foot in, um, in 2020, starting from a baseline of its 2008 experimentations, then building aggressively thereafter, there was a concern that they would crowd out Congress and that the congressional reaction would be uh, you know what, because we have an aggressive Fed, we don't have to take some of the hard political calls that uh, are required by using fiscal policy on the front line. And yet it is March 11th. President Biden just signed a $1.9 trillion package, the second largest fiscal stimulus bill ever passed. The first, of course, being the CARES Act itself. And that comes on the heels of a $900 billion uh, uh, piece of legislation, now largely fiscal, almost exclusively fiscal, uh, signed by President Trump on December 27th. This tells me something pretty extraordinary, that uh, the fears that many of us have, myself included, were I th maybe they were exactly right based on what we knew at the time. But uh, events have suggested that Congress is not seeing monetary policy as a substitute for aggressive fiscal policy. And I think that for those of us who want to see Congress on the front lines of policy decisions, economic policy, financial policy and the like, this is something to celebrate. Even if you're one of those folks who thinks, oh my gosh, what, uh, you know, what, uh, incredible, uh, waste or, or I would never vote for this kind of thing. Um, those kinds of folks uh, have generally, and I think correctly, been worried about the Fed displacing Congress's appropriate role for being the policy responder or first resort. And I think that those concerns are just not, uh, uh, they might be overblown. And I say that with, some some note of penitence because the, uh, I was doing a little bit of the blowing on uh, those overblown concerns. The other thing I want to see uh, a lot more of, uh, and this is something Adam that we talked about on the last podcast, is I'd love I'd sure love to see uh, Democrats and Republicans uh, engage in some sort of a restoration of the relatively recent past on Fed appointments. Vacancies are a pending vacancy now. I think the Biden administration should move extremely swiftly in nominating someone. 
and that we should see something like we see in many other contexts from antitrust to uh, to Department of Justice to uh, many, many others where the assessment looks much less like a Supreme Court nomination and much more like a bipartisan evaluation of of credentials uh, and uh, and uh, appropriateness. We had that until the late 2000s. And now we've got, uh, and who is to blame for this, I think, is is open to debate. Um, but we need to restore that norm because the consequence has been a devastating vacancy crisis at the Fed. Uh, and the Senate has an important role to play in remedying that. Peter, thanks as always for advertising the podcast. For those who aren't already subscribers, we call the podcast Gray Matters after the Gray Center. Um, where in addition to just normal podcast episodes, events like this appear. Subscribe, five stars, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, um, a couple of questions before we wrap up. We have about 10 minutes to go. I'm going to read both of the remaining audience questions and throw in one of my own. And uh, you you all can try to keep up and and cherry pick whichever one you want to answer. Nicholas Anthony uh, asks Jennifer, and this was about 45 minutes ago in the conversation. uh, he, He says, Jennifer... Peter mentioned the effect of headlines and people pushing agendas. Do you think that effect partly explains the sudden rush to address payment for order flow? Do you think change is overdue here or uh, has it been left alone for so long uh, because it's not an issue? So that's one question. Another question comes from uh, Nikhil Sridhar. He asks, is it reasonable to expect the Biden administration to reverse the recent Volcker rule rollback for collateralized loan obligations of VC funds and securitized loans. Two technical questions. I'll throw in a third while we're at it. Just in very general terms, we haven't talked much about fintech. Um, do you have any thoughts on on what uh, we might see in the next four years? As uh, obviously technology changes, it seems faster than ever uh, with real impacts on the financial services that we receive and, and the way we get information about markets. That's like an all-you-can-eat buffet of, of, of nerd questions there. Maybe I'll, I'll let Jennifer go first, and then Kate, and then Peter. I'll take the one that was specifically addressed to me, um, but anyone else can feel free to weigh in. Um, payment for order flow is is interesting because it has been looked at multiple times by the SEC over the past two decades, but it is something that did predate uh, the GameStop issue um, as something that was being looked at by regulators again. Um, In 2020, FINRA had an exam, a targeted exam, looking at zero commission trading, which is in part another question as to how does payment for order flow operate. We haven't seen the outcome from what FINRA decided or learned from those sets of exams yet. But but to say that it, it was only on the table because of GameStop, I think, is, is incorrect. Um, regulators have been looking at it. Um, that said, it, like a lot of order flow inducements, has been kind of viewed as a, as a non-issue by the regulators. Um, and focus has instead been on managing the conflict of interest or the actual underlying concern of best execution of securities trades. And I think that that's likely where we're going to see the SEC come out again once it goes through the effort of reviewing payment for order flow again. I think I think at this point, the, the headlines are going to force the SEC's hand on at least doing something formal in a review space there again, but I'm not sure that the outcome is going to be any different. 
Thanks. Kate, any of those questions in there that you want to grab? Yeah, I was going to say so many. It's hard to know. Um, you know, I want to say something quickly about the, the payment for order flow, but but abstracting away for a second. I mean, I think the issue oftentimes is there's the issue of the way it immediately becomes salient to the public. And here was GameStop payment for order flow. Like here's, you know, this, this surreptitious way that, that somebody's being compensated when I thought I was getting something for free. Um, but I think it, it does raise a, a much bigger issue just about disclosures. I mean, I, I think there's a, a much deeper issue over do people really understand what they are getting and when they're working through any of the myriad different kind of financial middlemen that are out there, like how much do they understand about the incentives that are created by how that party is actually getting compensated? So so I think when we, we take a step back and think broader picture in those terms, I, I think there are a lot of uh, important issues for the SEC, for bank regulators, and for others uh, to be thinking about um, if, if we want disclosure to, to achieve any of the things that we actually uh, think it's going to achieve. Um, fintech, reg tech, you know, they've been big topics for a very long period of time. Um, I mean, I'll just say quickly, I think what's really interesting there is just how much the framework of the debate around fintech has changed. So you go back to uh, after the last financial crisis, and it was all about, okay, we're going to peer-to-peer lending. We're going to allow people who are kind of like sitting at home to lend money directly to, you know, somebody, you know, three states away who's, you know, trying to, to save up for a vacation or to pay off credit cards. And it was going to be personal, but as a way of kind of like moving away from the banks that we kind of really didn't trust. Uh, now, of course, we know that the fintech has evolved away from that peer-to-peer to marketplace lending and to be securitized and everything else, and also partnering with the big banks. And then separately, there have been all these concerns about kind of like Silicon Valley and bro culture and, and fintech just being kind of the latest iteration of what is a problematic set of values. So I mean, I don't know where it's all going to go out, partly because I think that very conception you know, there's a lot of different things happening underneath that heading. Uh, but it is striking to me just how much the the framework um, and the narratives around it have really changed over the last decade. Peter, anything you want to take out of those questions? Yeah, um, uh, maybe just a couple short things. I had in mind after I finally finished uh, these two books that I've uh, my publishers have been uh, nagging me to finish for the last few years, uh, that I want to write a book, The History of Fintech, and have it end right before 2008 and focus on things like, uh, you know, the accounting ledgers and the paper check and, of course, credit card technology, uh, the ATM, different kinds of things like this. I mean, the point of it would be to explain the processes of innovation, how so many of these arise out of public-private partnerships and uh, and public subsidies, um, uh, just how much of it is about regulatory arbitrage and the like. And how little of it is about the internet. Uh, now, of course, fintech today is, is totally different. You're thinking, we think cryptocurrency, we think about using technology and mobile and, uh, and smartphones, uh, and for digitally native apps to accomplish all kinds of important tasks. Um, but, but fintech is in fact so much broader than this that as a regulatory category, I just don't think it makes any sense at all. Um, and so, there are instances where this is coming up to a floor. For example, what kind of charter specific kinds of financial institutions should have that want some of the benefits of being a bank, such as ask, uh, access as a depository institution to the Fed's discount window, but without the obligations of actually taking deposits. That's a really interesting issue. Uh, experts disagree. Uh, courts are, are, are taking a look. 
Right? But I think by and large, it's it's so much more uh, important from a legislative and regulatory cat, uh, perspective to look at broader categories and recognize that different kinds of institutions are performing similar kinds of functions with different sorts of risk profiles. Because when we get too segmented and we start thinking, okay, this is how we should think about fintechs. This is how we should think about incumbent banks. This is how we should think about money markets. Um, we, we get the, uh, the kinds of fractures, uh, and blind spots that, uh, are, are lead us so often, uh, to panics and the like. Last thing I'll say, which I think is one of the most important themes of our conversation is when we think about, you know, is everything securities fraud or, uh, do we end up with central banks who, uh, do become, you know, the regulators of everything and therefore the regulators of nothing. I think the key to recognize is that the, uh, the categories that we have defined here, investment fraud, price stability, full employment, um, integrity of the markets, right? Fairness. These are incredibly broad categories that are themselves, uh, by deliberate congressional design, meant to be transubstantive. And so when we see securities fraud uh, being weaponized in the hands of private parties or, or by the SEC itself, where you see the Fed thinking very broadly about its mandate, I generally see things that we should be glad about because these are, these are agencies and, uh, and bureaucracies that are trying to live in their moment as opposed to being anchored by their past. Um, and so I, I guess my, my final point about all of that is just how ubiquitous it is, how common, not just today, but throughout history. Peter, in your book, I'm going to look forward to the chapter on the pneumatic tubes that used to send the, 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 the money and everything out and the receipt out to your car when you drove up through the bank back when people used to do that sort of thing. Listen, everybody, we're almost out of time. Just one last question. Um, just in a, a brief few words, uh, what's the most underrated issue? Out of everything that's out there on financial regulatory policy, what's the issue that you think is getting the least attention now relative to the attention it either deserves or will get by the end of the next four or eight years? It might be a prominent topic that you think is going to become even more prominent or maybe something that's barely on people's radars that will get there before long. Um, Kate, we'll start with you. <clears throat> I think I'd create a category of the near misses that we really should have seen in March and the immediate time thereafter. So like Jennifer provided this exhaustive list of the SEC's priorities, open-end bond funds weren't on that list and they really need to be. Uh, I think CCPs and the demands they were making on clearing members during periods of systemic distress. So I just think there's a whole monopoly, like like a lot of things that happened that, that didn't get bad precisely because Congress acted big and aggressively uh, that we are going to be really regretting not addressing if we fail to address. Thanks, Kate, and thanks for joining us today. Uh, Peter, what's the most underrated issue out there? Um, I would say um, probably cross-border money laundering, and in particular, the way that money laundering, uh, which is a category, is just a gigantic concern for, for international central banks and financial regulators the world over. And we are so far from getting a good grasp on this and especially how crypto is going to interact with money laundering. This is, you know, uh, push shoving in some cases central banks toward central bank digital currencies and other kinds of centralized ledgers, um, that, uh, that might be competitors for, for, for crypto. Um, but I would like to see a lot more careful thinking about, uh, the state of the art of, of, uh, money laundering and especially as the payment system and financial system continue to evolve. 
Thanks, Peter. Jennifer, you'll get the last word. What's the most underrated issue out there? You know, I think I'm going to steal something that Kate talked about a bunch today, which was fragmentation in the regulatory space, which I don't think that we're going to hear anything about over the next four years. But but the friction that it creates in the system, the duplicative regulation, the inability to regulate coherently when we're seeing that in the crypto space now where we have turf wars over what crypto should be able to do. I think the fragmentation um, itself is a problem, and it's a structural problem that, that is not going to get the attention that it deserves. Thanks, Jennifer. Thanks again to everybody for everything we've discussed today. This has been just fascinating. I know I enjoyed it, and I hope our audience did. And just a reminder, everyone, this is the final uh, installment of a five-webinar series the Gray Center has been hosting since mid-January on policy agendas in the new administration and Congress. The previous discussions are online and they'll appear in our podcast. We focused on OIRA, energy and the environment, uh, uh, big tech, and police and civil rights. And it was just a fascinating series of conversations, and I've really enjoyed it, and I hope our audience has as well. Uh, For other updates on what the Gray Center will be doing next, keep an eye on our website where we'll keep announcing things. And before long, we'll even be meeting in person again. We're planning in-person events, conferences in Washington uh, beginning in the fall. So stay tuned to our website. Thanks as always for joining us today and I hope you join us again for our next event.